0: Roughly 30 years before the life of Jesus, the first emperor of Rome was crowned, Gaius Octavius, although you might know him by the more popular name that he used, Caesar Augustus. And Augustus is hard to translate, but it means something like the illustrious one or the exalted one. And under Caesar Augustus, Rome achieved incredible type of feats. I mean, they advanced with with roads, with architecture, with militaristic expansion. I mean, the, the empire was just growing significantly under him. One of his greatest achievements was the fact that people said Caesar Augustus brought in and ushered in the age of Pax Romana. Pax Romana meaning the Roman peace. Although it said Roman peace, the idea behind Pax Romana was that in and through Rome, particularly the work of Caesar, that peace was being ushered in to the entire world. Now in order to enact the Pax Romana, kind of climactically and dramatically, Caesar Augustus visited the Temple of Janus. Now the Temple of Janus was dedicated to the god Janus, and Janus was a god dealing with beginning, transitions, and ending, and because of that was associated with the beginning and ending of war. Now, at the Temple of Janus, the key feature was the gates of Janus. And the gates of Janus were opened when Rome was in times of war and they were closed when there was peace in the Roman Empire. Needless to say, those gates, for the most part, were always open because the ancient world is brutal and as Rome grew, you would expect there to be more fights on different fronts. So there were some people alive at that time who never saw in their lifetime the gates of Janus being closed because there was always war. Well, after Caesar Augustus ushered in a massive military victory, he walks into the temple of Janus and closes the gates of Janus, signaling to his people that he himself is the world's savior who is bringing about the world's peace. That Rome was bringing about Pax Romana to all that would come under their dominion. Because of this victory and many others, he was given many different names and many different titles. One of the titles was the first citizen of Rome because Rome had been around for a long time but he was the first one to bring about the empire and be crowned emperor. So you have him being the first citizen and because of that another name was developed almost like as an extension of that he was called the father of the country because if you're the first citizen all the other citizens come after you and that means you're the father in some sense of every person who's a citizen of the Roman empire. He was also called the Pontiff Maximus, which is the high pontiff chief priest because Caesar Augustus was not only at the top of the ladder regarding government and military and kind of social orders, but he was on the top of the ladder regarding religious matters. He is the high priest, the first citizen, the father of the country, the exalted one. One of his other interesting names was Imperator Caesar Divi Filius, which is Latin, translates roughly to Commander Caesar, son of the deified one. Now, there's something embedded in that phrase son of the deified one. If you're the son of one who is deified, you are a son of God in some sense. You might be asking, well, how is he the son of God? Like, how did they work that? What was the angle for that? Well, his adopted father was Julius Caesar. And after Julius Caesar's passing, sometime after that, there was celebrations done in his honor. And Rome threw through the celebrations up. There was games and festivities, and at the games, it was said that a comet appeared in the sky, like a star ascending to the heavens. And because there was plenty of eyewitnesses that saw this sign in the sky, it began to be said that that was the spirit of Julius Caesar ascending to the heavens to take his rightful place among the gods. So if your dad is you know, up there in his rightful place among the gods, You are the son of the deified one. You, by implication, are a son of God. This is depicted on the coin. On the left, you see a picture of Caesar Augustus with his name written on it, but on the right, you see that comet or that star, the eight-beam star, and then the words, divine Julius. And that star began to symbolically represent like a crown, a deified crown, a crown of heaven upon the deified Julius. And... Then by extension, those types of qualities and attributes were extended to the sun here on earth, Caesar Augustus. So Rome had a message and a story. They had a good news story. The Greek word for good news is euangelion. It's where we get our word gospel, and they had a good news that Through Caesar Augustus and the might of Rome, we're bringing about peace to the four corners of the earth. Caesar is a mighty lord, the Greek word kurios. He's a mighty savior. Now here's the problem though, is um, the way Rome brought brought about their peace was, was often through violent means, through barbaric means. So let's say you're someone who doesn't buy into the hype of Rome. You're not buying into the propaganda. And you say, I'm going to challenge Rome. Well, Rome has a method of dealing with you if you would ever dare challenge the might of Rome. And that was crucifixion. This was a a torture device that they had perfected the previous couple hundred years. And so if ever you would want to challenge the might of Rome, you wouldn't buy into the hype or the propaganda, you might find yourself on a Roman cross, which... It's very interesting because then, in some real sense, Rome brought about their peace through a cross because the cross was so horrific of a death that it was meant to force you into compliance. So let's say for an instance, you, you have the wild idea that you want to challenge Rome. Well, if you would have ever seen a crucifixion take place, you would banish that thought from your mind because if there's a possibility of that happening, I don't want anything to do with it. It was a a human billboard of suffering. Rome would line the streets with the victims so you would see them writhing in agony. Now, even before they were nailed to this cross, there was a bunch of pain-inflicted torture that was done to these people. Here's just a quote to describe the Roman scourging that took place before crucifixions. Josephus, a first century historian, records of his eyewitness account, he was whipped until his bones showed. So, They perfected the scourging. The Roman scourging was meant to break an individual before the cross would break them even further. And so the whips were designed to to tear away flesh and chip away at bone and, and bones were exposed. This is Seneca writing about crucifixion. Can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, or letting out his life drop by drop rather than expiring once and for all? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long, sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly tumors on chest and shoulders and draw the breath of life amid long drawn out agony? I think he would have many excuses for dying even before mounting the cross. Deny now, here's the key, deny now if you can that nature is very generous in making death inevitable. In other words, the agony experienced on the cross is so horrific and so terrible that the only mercy afforded to one who is crucified is the fact that death is eventually inevitable. Death is the only mercy afforded to one who is crucified. And so Seneca's writing, describing the crucifixion process, he's like, deny now if you can that nature gives this very generous gift and the fact that yes, eventually you'll get to die. This gives you a glimpse of Roman crucifixion. Here's a letter from Cicero, and he's describing, he's he's writing this letter and he's condemning the actions taken place by a corrupt man who had a Roman citizen crucified. Because crucifixion was so bad, it was reserved only for the most vile of criminals, people who committed treason, It was reserved for slaves. Slaves were seen as in some sense less than human so that this type of death was only reserved for them but not for Roman citizens. However, there was a corrupt individual who ended up having a Roman citizen crucified Cicero Cicero's writing to condemn him. But I want you to hear his words to see the vocabulary he employs in describing a crucifixion. A spot commanding a view of Italy was picked out by that man for the express purpose that the wretched man who was dying in agony and torture might see that the rights of liberty and slavery were only separated by a very narrow strait and that Italy might behold her son murdered by the most miserable and most painful punishment appropriate to slaves alone. It is a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is a wickedness. To put him to death is almost parricide. Parricide being the, the murder of parents. What shall I say of crucifying him? So guilty an action cannot by any possibility be adequately expressed by any name bad enough for it. We don't have vocabulary to describe the horror of that event. It is the most miserable and most painful punishment appropriate to slaves alone. So, he would go on in a different letter to say, let the very word cross be removed not only from the bodies of Roman citizens, but from their thoughts, eyes, and ears. In other words, may a Roman citizen never be crucified, but may we never even speak the word. May our ears never hear it. Because to draw up the imagery of the cross is so vile and horrific, it is something that should be cast and exiled and set aside. We don't even want to think about it. This was all a part of the big package of the good news of Rome. They brought about their peace through the cross because if anyone would dare challenge the might of Rome, you knew your fate. You knew what would happen. And so, there is this so-called good news. There is the Pax Romana, the priest of the exalted one, the august one, and it's going out through the Roman Empire. Roman Empire. Simultaneously, there's another message, another Evangelion or good news story going about. And it is the exact like polar opposite. There is a group of people identified as Christians who are going around saying their good news is the good news that a first century Jewish man, Jewish man named Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under Pontius Pilate under a Roman authority and that the good news is found in the crucified one. And that this crucified one went down into death, but God did not abandon him unto death and raised him in power and glory on the third day. Now there's a man by the name of Paul the Apostle, who was once a persecutor of Christians, but now has become a follower of this Jesus. And he writes a letter to Christians in the early 60s AD, who live in a Roman colony called Philippi. This is the second chapter of a letter written to Christians living in a Roman colony. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Okay, the the sentence structure is a little difficult, but Paul actually is just throwing out a bunch of rhetorical questions. It's easy to miss, but look, look, he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, Well, if you're writing to Christians, how might you respond? Is there encouragement in Christ? Yes. It's like rhetorical. Is there comfort in love? Yes. Any participation in the spirit? Yes. Any affection and sympathy? Yes. So it's like saying, is two plus two, four? Yes. Is is there encouragement in Christ? Yes. Okay, if that is true, and it's obviously true, Paul then pivots and says, then complete my joy complete my joy. This is a man in prison for the gospel saying complete my joy. And what is his request? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. In other words, complete my joy by being unified. Have the same mind. Have the same love. Be of full accord with one another. Now, it's easy just to like skim over that but that's that's remarkable. You're in prison and you're saying like make my joy complete. I just want you guys to be unified. I want you guys to be unified. Now you you fill in the blank for yourself like if life isn't going good for you or like life is going good for you doesn't matter like if you were to say make my joy complete you know what's going to make me really happy? It's going to complete my joy. My joy will be 100% and then, like, what, what, what's it gonna be? <laughs> Give me a cyber truck. Like, get me, um, I'm in prison, man, bring me some good food, the food here is bad. Uh, if you're a student, maybe you tell yourself, I'll be happy, um, make my joy complete. Uh, Lord, help this girl just agree to go on this first date with me. <laughs> um, I, I'm worried about the future, help my retirement funds. Like, do it for yourself, like, fill in the blank for yourself and be honest. Complete my joy. I doubt the first thing that comes to our mind is, may the church be unified as one. May we be of the same mind. May we have the same love. May we be in full accord. This Greek word uh, full, full accord, sumpsukos, it has to deal with, it's, it's a term of harmony. So if you have a musical background, think uh, like root, third, fifth. And so the idea is that there's different notes so there's not any racing of differences, but it's in the difference of notes coming together that the, the the chord is produced. The chord is greater and more beautiful than the single note because there's a difference in the three notes, but they're brought together root third fifth to form the harmony. That's what Paul's desire is. Now you may say, oh, okay, well, let's just be unified then. I, I, we could do that. No, it's it's much harder to be in harmony than you think. Like, let me give you some examples. Like, how often is, how often is your home in full accord with the people that you love? How about, how about holidays with extended family? When was the last time you had a Christmas in full accord, beautiful, perfect harmony, or in the workplace, or, or just with friends, fam- like, perfect harmony? Now remember, who are the people of this church? If you go back a few weeks, we talked about the first converts to this church, right? 10 years prior to the writing of this letter, the first three converts is Lydia, a wealthy business owner. Then there's a slave in the Roman Empire who's oppressed by spiritual and earthly powers. Then there's a a Roman jailer, likely an ex-Roman soldier. And in the uh, 10 years since then, let's throw in some Jews and Gentiles from different walks of life and throw them all together and say, now go do the harmony thing. So Paul knows how difficult that is. We may go, okay, yeah, harmony. No, this is very difficult. If you actually try to implement this, you know you're gonna run into a lot of roadblocks. There'll be a lot of tension. So the question you should be asking is, okay, Paul, we get the logic. We know there's the rhetorical questions. Is there encouragement in Christ? Yes, two plus two equals four. Now we're gonna make your joy complete by being unified, but how how can we possibly do that? And Paul says, I'm glad you asked. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So if you're gonna do this unity thing, you have to put to death selfish ambition and conceit. And what does that look like? Paul, again, is like, I'm glad you asked. But in in humility, you clothe yourself in humility and you count others more significant than yourselves. And this is incredibly important, what's written next as far as understanding biblical wisdom. Let each of you look only not to his own interest but also to the interest of others. So biblical humility is not thinking like you're a loser and then pretending everyone else is awesome and I don't care about me, I'm such... I'm so bad and everyone else is awesome. Like, that's not biblical humility. Biblical humility is not only looking out for me, but also looking out for others. Biblical wisdom says, it's not all about me. And if there's like a really important message that people in our culture need to hear, it's this. It's not all about you. It's not all about me. Biblical humility is when someone says, I'm going to not only look after me, but I'm gonna also look out for the interest of others. And so your eyes aren't always focused inward. They're looking at others. You're counting others more significant. And you're clothing yourself in that humility. But this, again, is very difficult to do. Because this first line, if you really meditate upon it and think critically about yourself, you'll realize it reveals a lot. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. If you really reflect on that, you will realize that even many of the good things you did that had the appearance of caring for others were actually just disguises for selfish ambition. Have you ever done something good hoping people would notice? Have like, Have you ever caught yourself doing the right thing but clearly it's because you want others to know that you're doing the right thing? Look at the t- look at the type of person I am. Look how generous I am. Look how humble I am. If they gave awards at this church for humility, I'd make the top 10 list. <laughs> I'm the top 10 humble humblest person in this room. If you really examine yourself, you will realize that many of the so-called good things you do are motivated somewhere down the ladder of your motivations, like there's some type of selfish motive sometimes in that, it's crazy, it's really crazy. So Paul, like let's review his logic. Is there encouragement in Christ? Yes, is two plus two equal four? Yes, make my joy complete, I am in prison. I don't even know if I'm gonna live or die. However, my one thing that would make my joy complete is that the church would be one, that it would be unified. They would be striving together side by side for the advancement of the gospel. The only way you're going to be able to do that is if you put to death selfish ambition and you clothe yourself in humility and you look out for one another, not just yourself. And then likewise, at first you go, okay, well, that's, that's kind of, I guess I could do that. And then Paul, like rightfully going, no, you don't know how hard that, you still don't know how hard that is. And then you reflect on you go, well how, how can we possibly do that? How can I live in that manner? Paul again says, I'm glad you asked. Have this mind among yourselves. Here's Paul's secret. Have this mind among yourself, selves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul says, if you're going to do all that, those things that I just listed, and you're going to be properly motivated, you're not doing that out of selfish ambition, there's only one way you can do that and that's by fixing your eyes upon the example of Christ. Have this mind, this posture, this attitude in you, and it's already yours in Christ Jesus. And then he lists what Christ has done for us on our behalf. So if you're gonna be the type of person that puts to death selfish ambition, the type of person that clothes themselves in humility, you have to have an example that you're trying to emulate, a person that you're trying to be like, And Paul says, you have to keep your eyes on the work of Christ. And you remind yourself what he has done. And then he tells us what he has done. And at this point, Paul puts forward some of the most beautiful literature ever written. He makes the most audacious historical claim and he presents us with a theological proposition that is nothing short of awe-inspiring. This is what he says, beginning in verse six, speaking of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's take this piece by piece. Verse six, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Paul's claim is that that man Jesus who was crucified wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a normal human being. But prior to him Being found in the likeness of humanity, he himself was equal with God. He was equal with God, but did not cling to that. He didn't grasp it, he didn't hold on to it. And what does the one who is equal with God do? It says that he descends. And this begins the greatest descent ever done. This is the great descent. He descends from heaven, where he had equality with God, and he takes upon himself humanity which that alone should be enough to end this little segment because that's a radical claim in and of its own, that there is a God in heaven who would look down at the mess that we made and would take upon himself humanity and enter into our condition and predicament. But he goes further. He goes, he takes upon himself the likeness of humanity and then he descends further and he becomes a servant The Greek word for servant here is doulos, it's the word for slave. So yes, it can mean servant, but in the Greco-Roman world, this is the general word for slave. So the one who exists in the highest of heaven, who is equal to God, descends and takes upon himself humanity, and then descends even lower to become the doulos, the slave, the servant. Which is just unthinkable, that in and of itself, but Paul says it goes even further because he doesn't just enter into our humanity, he doesn't just become a doula slave or servant, he is obedient to the point of death. Think about, like, the claim is God became a human and experienced our great enemy, death itself. But he didn't just experience any old death. Paul, in a few words, tells the Philippians pages and pages of information. He goes into death, but not just any old death, even death on a cross. Now, if you were a reader, and maybe you hadn't heard this story before, at this point, like, your breath is taken away even if you don't believe it because if you had witnessed a crucifixion, that image and those images would come flooding back to your brain and it would be the most vile, horrific scene you've ever experienced. Someone beaten beyond recognition, nailed immovable, suspended between heaven and earth with the only mercy afforded to them is that eventually they're going to die. The one who is God descends and descends, not just to humanity, not just to a servant, slave, loss, not just to death, but death on a cross. And he goes into human suffering to the greatest degree. Now, after Paul describes this great descent, he then begins to describe the great ascent. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Christ goes to the depths You do not go lower than dying in agony on a Roman cross. And then he gets exalted to the highest of heavens. Now, when you hear Paul say this, you're going to hear it in different ways depending upon your background. So if you are a Roman citizen, you would be hearing some things in a certain way. And likewise, if you were maybe a Jewish person in Philippi, you would be hearing certain things that maybe a Roman audience would not hear. So how might a Roman citizen in Philippi be hearing this section? Therefore, God has highly exalted him. There is now one who is exalted more than any earthly exalted figure. There is someone who has a name above the name of Augustus. And he has a name that is above Every name, and at this name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Who will all of humanity bow before? Not your king in Rome, but to the crucified one. To Jesus who was crucified by Roman authority. And then every tongue is going to confess. Confess what? That Jesus is kurios, Jesus is Lord. And so there is a gospel message about the one who was crucified under Roman authority who was left to die but was not abandoned. God has raised him up and exalted him. He is the one who has a name above every name. He is the one with good news. He is bringing about peace because he himself is the prince of peace. And there's a good news that is fundamentally different than the news of the Roman Empire. And see the powerful component of this message is that the cross is the worst device that Rome has. There's nothing worse that Rome has to throw at you to defeat you. When you die on a cross, you die writhing in agony, humiliated and shamed and rejected. That is the worst they can do to you. The worst they can do to you is nail you to their cross. Well, if that's the worst that they can do to you. And it happened to Jesus and he came back in power and glory on the third day, well then you might wanna swear allegiance to him and no one else. So that's how like a Roman mind might hear it. How might a Jewish person hear it who's saturated in the Hebrew scriptures? they hear about a servant who is exalted, they have scriptures that talk about this. This is Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So within the Hebrew scriptures, there's already categories that have been established. The God of Israel is saying in Isaiah that he is going to have a servant. The God of Israel will have a servant and this servant will be high and lifted up and be exalted, But here's the mystery and the paradox. How is this servant high lifted up and exalted? Verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. His appearance is marred beyond human recognition. Go back to how Seneca described a crucifixion victim, how they looked before they were nailed to the cross. They are unrecognizable and his form beyond that of children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. So the God of Israel is saying he has a servant who will be high and lifted up, but mysteriously, he's also in some sense going to be marred beyond recognition. Now there's another scripture from Isaiah that would come to your mind upon reading about the servant who is high and lifted up. Isaiah 45, this is Yahweh, the God of Israel, speaking in Isaiah. There is no other God besides me. A righteous God and savior, there is none besides me. There's no one else. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. I am God, there is no other. God is saying, I'm it, I'm the only savior, I'm the only Lord, I'm the only God. So. If you wanna be saved, you have to turn to me. All the ends of the earth, turn to me. Verse 23, by myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. And then here's the key point. God is saying of himself, there's no one else besides me. I'm it, I'm the only savior. And to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Does this sound familiar? It is to God himself that every knee will bow and every tongue swear allegiance. And this is speaking of the mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. That what is being said of God in the book of Isaiah is now applied to the crucified one, Jesus of Nazareth. Therefore, God has highly Exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, the crucified one, every knee should bow. Every knee should bow. In heaven, whether thrones, powers, principalities, or angels, and things on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, every last human being, every person made in the image of God in this life or in the next will bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. It is inescapable. In this, Paul is describing the great descent and the great ascent and in that descent and ascent you see the great reversal. There is a great reversal that undoes the script. It reverses the script. What script am I talking about? Our script. The script of humanity. Our story. How does our story begin? What is the story of humanity? There is a man in a garden, Adam, And what does the first human do? The first human is told, you can be like God. And the first human desires to be like God and rebels against God, and the consequence of that is death is given to men. You can be like God, he wants to be like God, he rebels and death enters unto men. But what does Christ do? Christ who is God becomes a man and goes willfully unto death so that men might have life. And it is the great reversal. Adam eats of the tree. Christ dies upon the cursed tree. Adam is clothed by the mercy of God. Christ is stripped naked and nailed in agony to the cross. Adam ascends and reaches to the heavens. God descends in order that he might meet men, save them, and bring them up with him. It is the great undoing of our script, the great undoing of our story, in the descent and ascent of Christ. Now, this is all like weighty, like deep theology that Paul is talking about, but it's really easy to forget, like why are we even talking about this? Why are we talking about all of this stuff? Do you remember where we started? Why did Paul bring this up? Is there encouragement in Christ? Is there participation in his spirit? Is there love and affection? Does two plus two equal four? Okay, then make my joy complete. Be unified. Well, how are we going to do that? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, we get this rich retelling of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of him descending and ascending and being given the name above every name. Paul gives us that because he's trying to encourage us to behave and live our lives a certain way. Namely, that we would adopt the posture or the mode of being that Christ displayed and that we would be like Christ and not only look out for our own interest, but look out for the interests of others. So the grounding of all of this is actually like ethical prescription. Paul's, he's like, you have to be unified and the only way you're gonna accomplish that is it can't all be about you. And do you wanna know who demonstrated that perfectly for us? Because if there's one being who, it actually is all about them, (laughs) it would be God who is worthy of that. But what does God himself do? The being that is actually worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. He lays aside the crown, becomes a human, becomes the slave, the servant, and goes to death, even death on a cross, in order to save someone like me, in order to save someone like you. That's good news, that the king in the highest of heavens would lay aside his crown and come down here and die for someone like me. Who am I? When you begin with who am I, it becomes really easy to start looking after the care, the needs of others. Who am I, Lord, that you would save someone like me? How could I not then try to be like you? So Paul's goal for talking about Jesus is that these Christians who are in this Roman colony would desire to be Christ-like, that they would wanna become less selfish. They would wanna have less selfish ambition, that they would wanna clothe themselves in humility. They would begin to look after each other. And so the the practical kind of application of this rich theology, at least in Philippians 2, Paul says is like, examine yourselves. Are you living selfishly? Like, are you only looking after yourself? And again, you'd be surprised how much of the good things you do in life are actually rooted in selfishness. And so Paul says, it's like, no, you have to put to death selfish ambition. It's not all about you. It's not all about me. How can we be unified and one and care for each other? And when you do that, you are operating in a mode of being that is fundamentally different than the world because Rome operated in a certain way. All empires operate in a certain way and all human beings operate in a certain way. We look after the needs and concerns of who? First, but Christians adopt the way of Christ and in doing so, they model a different mode of being and we demonstrate the love of Christ to the rest of the world. And the world will notice. These people are different. They are peculiar people. We're different. We operate differently. And the only way we can do that, Paul says, is if we keep our eyes fixed on the example of Christ and daily we say, how can I be more and more like you? How can I emulate the work of Christ in my life? So, before we go to communion, let's remind ourselves and have the words of Paul inspire us to become a less selfish people, a people caring for each other, a people unified, in full accord, in harmony. What is the great gospel and good news of Jesus Christ? It's that the king in the highest of heaven lays it all aside Puts on humanity, enters into our situation, our circumstance, becomes a doulos, a slave servant. And he goes to death in obedience to God the Father. God the Son is obedient to God the Father even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's where everyone would, not that. All the way down to the cross itself but God did not abandon him. He is now the exalted one. Jesus is the name above every names, and every knee will bow to him, and every tongue will confess his name. Caesar is dead, Christ is alive. Rome has crumbled, Christ's kingdom marches on. The great symbol that was the cross that once stood for, shame, humiliation, human agony and torment has now been transformed so that the great symbol of terror is now seen by hundreds of millions of people today as the great symbol of hope. It's the great reversal of all things. Even the cross and all of its ugliness can be made to be something beautiful. And now when you behold the cross, you don't see the agony, you see the symbol of victory that Rome did its worst, that Satan's sin and death did its worst, but Christ rose on the third day and the cross now is the symbol of victory, hope, and life and it's been transforming lives one by one for 2,000 years. Let's continue to operate in the mode of the cross, of sacrificial love, looking out for others, not putting ourselves on the throne, but Christ on the throne. Let's stand as we take communion.